keeping democracy alive with Bert Cohen. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans themselves. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're only seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shootings, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. At his inaugural speech, John Kennedy famously said, Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. But that was just talk. Who who does that anymore? Patriotism. Nah, that's just mythic stuff from the 18th and 19th century, right? In recent decades, it seems most Americans have felt at a real distance from any personal commitment to political participation. Only about half of us even bothered to vote. Oh, sure, we read about and pay tribute to heroes of the past, people like Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks, but that was so long ago and far away. No one has time for that stuff anymore. We're too busy now doing our jobs, raising families, spending time on the Internet. And if we dig only a little deeper into what life was like for some of those historical American heroes, it was kind of interrupted by unpleasantness, such as facing angry cops who are armed with billy clubs and guns and tear gas, getting arrested, getting beaten up, or even killed. Who wants that? Who needs it? Most Americans don't like Donald Trump or his extreme agenda, but What are you going to do? We can just make the best of it. Give the guy a chance, right? Here we are deep into the 21st century, and we've all become profoundly risk-averse. Resistance is messy. It often involves risks. Who needs that? Well, maybe all of us as Americans need to think about taking a risk. As our guest today writes, to be a citizen in a republic on occasion requires courage. Yes, from all of us. Our guest today on Keeping Democracy Alive is Jim Sleeper. Jim, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Bert. Glad to be here. Jim Sleeper is a writer on national civic cultures and politics and is a lecturer in political science at Yale. Wait a minute. Didn't George Bush go there? Sorry about that. (laughs) (laughs) He was there when I was there. Oh, my goodness. Well, anyway, Jim Sleeper, he teaches seminars on journalism, liberalism, and democracy. He's the author of The Closest of Strangers, Liberalism and the Politics of Race in New York, and Liberal Racism, 1997. He's an editor and contributor to several anthologies. He's a former editor and columnist for the New York Daily News and Newsday. Sleeper is a member of the editorial board of the quarterly Dissent. Good magazine. His article in the Washington Monthly currently is when resisting means risking. Again, thanks for being with us. And when when John Kennedy said those famous words, wasn't it a sort of a, a pontifical, impressive sounding phrase? I mean, 
nobody had to take any risk in 1961, right? I mean, was there any depth to his words? Did average Americans really get what he meant by that? Or was it just, you know, sound good, feel good words? Well, that's a good question, Bert. I think there was a kind of nervous appreciation of it because, you know, in those days, a lot of people still had fresh memories of participating in World War II, and um, they had memories of the McCarthy era, too, of, of, you know, having to take big risks if they were uh, dissidents or or dissenters. And um, he was evoking something that was kind of arresting, not in in the criminal justice sense of arresting, but it I think it gave people pause. I remember there was quite a reaction, quite an enthusiastic reaction, like, yes, we need more of that. There was a kind of a fear that the country was settling into a kind of, uh, well, what Dwight Eisenhower in his farewell address called the military-industrial complex. Uh, People were looking for something a little better, and commercialism was very much on the rise then. So it kind of came as a... Uh, kind of a jarring note, but a, a, mm. a not unwelcome note at that time, I think. Mm. Interesting, yeah, about uh, getting involved, trying to inspire people. Well, sir, he certainly was trying to inspire people to be active citizens. Now, during the many years of the war in Vietnam, protests continued to build steadily. I sure remember. Of course, at the time, the militarists and pro-war people saw us protesters as less than patriotic. Indeed, today, 50 years later, I bet some, some people still see protesters as, as traitors. Talk about that, if you would, please. Yeah, that's actually why I wrote that piece in the Washington Monthly called um, when, when Resisting Means Risking. Um, there I was describing a situation in which some young men decided not to accept the draft, and I likened them to Rosa Parks deciding not to move to the back of the bus. In both cases, people were dissidents. They were breaking a law, but they were doing it in order to affirm the rule of law, which sounds like a paradox. But I think they were being very patriotic, and and so do many of us now, looking back at people like Rosa Parks, or for that matter, John Lewis, who's very much in the news today for having beaten uh, as he crossed the Edmund Pettus Bridge on a famous civil rights march, these people were resisting the legally constituted authority of their time in the name of a higher patriotism and a better legal order. They were willing to submit to the legal penalty for breaking the law. Right. They were breaking the law nonviolently. They were basically trying to uphold a higher principle. That is what you would call, or what I would call, and and others have called, constitutional patriotism. Patriotism that's based not just in rah-rah, blood and soil, but it's based in in a reverence for the Constitution. You're saying we've got something unique in this country, and that's the spirit and the letter of the Republic. And sometimes you have to defend the Republic against the government. Mm. And, of course, in those days, Mm. those long-ago times, as you mentioned, um, the Vietnam War... Um, our government was lying to us right and left uh, out of every side of its mouth about the war, about how it had been undertaken. Decades later, Robert McNamara, who was a chief architect of the yes. war as Secretary of Defense under Lyndon Johnson, said tearfully on, on, in, in the film The Fog of War Great film. that the war had been undertaken with deceit and delusion. 
And I don't think any of us could challenge the fact that the Iraq War was undertaken the same way, with deceit about weapons of mass destruction, yes. and the delusion that we were going to bring democracy to the Middle East. So, in those cases, you see, we have to begin to imagine that people who stand up against the conventional wisdom and the legally constituted authority, if they do it with dignity and, and not in a, a vicious or destructive way, are actually upholding true patriotism. That's the argument I would make, not in every instance, but in many. Absolutely. Some some good points there. And, uh, you know, how you do it is, is important, too. And I note that uh, there are right-wing groups now that are uh, uh, trying to get young anarchist-type kids who don't have uh, political experience or knowledge or education to uh, to bring violence to any protests against the uh, Trump-Pence administration. That would be a very dumb thing for people to do. <laughs> really. And yes. we have to be smart about it. And you write about draft card burning to protest the war in the late 60s. Of course, it was mainly young, white, male college students who were reasonably well-off. They weren't really risking much, were they? I mean, throughout the 20th century American history, there are many instances of working people fighting company bosses. Sometimes they got beaten up. Sometimes they won real meaningful victories. What? Let's talk about the, like some of the comparative risks there, the draft card burners and the, the labor uh, you know, people who, who sat down and sometimes got beaten up and tear gas and things like that. Why did they risk it? Why did they dare put their jobs and sometimes their lives on the line? I mean, they, they took some real risks, draft card burning. I don't know. What, talk about those risks, if you would, please, Jim. Well, first of all, in the, what I described in the article, they weren't burning their draft cards. They were they were handing them back to the selective ser- service system, so they weren't ah. doing something flamboyant. Those guys, uh, just to mention them for a second, the college students, they were risking uh, being in prison, going to jail, and one of the three of them did. Five years imprisonment, um, mm. lifelong felons, deprived of the right to vote for the rest of their lives. Oh. So they, they were pledging a lot. I mean, they were risking a lot in terms of their careers, who would hire them. Nobody knew. So I think they were taking risks, not not people who acted ridiculously. Right. The labor movement, though, had a strength that the anti-war movement didn't have quite as well. The labor movement was organized and disciplined around certain principles. You had labor unions that sponsored or backed some of these collective efforts to stand up against uh, abuses, um, exploitation, um, really nasty things that were going on that were usually excused and accepted. These people stood up against them in a clearly organized and disciplined way. In that sense, they were like the best of the civil rights movement Mm. and the best of the anti-war movement. Each of those movements had its bad side. We know that. There have been corrupt and very violent, uh, yeah. you know, labor people. There have been yeah, the, the civil rights movement, of course, had a dark underside. Uh, mm. Certain things that were done, certain kinds of protest, and certainly the anti-war movement had its hippie, uh, riotous uh, side. Yeah. So the question always is, how do you organize the right kind of opposition in a way that will attract the respect of people who are in the middle? and will not give them an excuse mm-hmm. or give the propagandists an excuse to just write it all off as violently destructive. 
That takes, I must say, it takes leadership as well as good organizing. Like the labor movement had had wonderful leaders at certain points. A. Philip Randolph, who was a black labor oh, yeah. leader, wonderful. Walter Ruther, John L. Lewis in some ways, um, who basically, going back to Eugene V. Debs, there was a kind of thing of mm-hmm. the dignity of labor. Mm-hmm. Workers, not just as workers wanting more, 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 which they did, but as citizens yes. who deserve to have certain rights, rights. in the workplace and, mm-hmm. and after work, in terms of having enough to live on and, and enough liberties. And uh, you needed leaders, just like the civil rights movement needed leaders, whom we all know of, to focus those claims and to dignify them. Because they're always going to be legitimately angry people who, you know, they go a little crazy, they yeah. go off the rails. Yeah, yeah, that that can be so counterproductive. And this... Yeah. You know, you you got to think about, you know, risk versus reward. What is a good, smart risk to take? And what is, like, really dumb that's going to get you in trouble, get you hurt, and not accomplish anything and only alienate people? And I know this was one of the, you know, as the anti-war movement uh, went on, and I was there in the thick of it, as were you, Jim. Uh, yep. You were probably at a higher level than I was just a kid at the time. But uh, that, that, you know, to make sure that uh, we in our actions, did not alienate people we were trying to attract. And I think as time went on, I mean, the war kept going on and on and on and on, much longer than, frankly, I thought it would. Uh, and and a lot of people said at the time of the May Day demonstration, for example, that, that I participated in 1971, where we were physically shutting down the center of the war machine, Washington, D.C. Uh, it, was, it was a symbolic gesture, but a lot of people felt like, oh, man, you're getting in people's ways. They want to get to work. You know, you're just interrupting people. And, you know, isn't that going to alienate people? So there is a question of, of timing. And, and I don't know who said it first, but politics is theater. I mean, it really is theater. What's the right, you know, uh, 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 energy to bring out at what's the right time? It takes, as you say, it takes leadership and and real consideration about uh, what's risky. And and now with the incoming Trump-Pence uh, administration, it's uh, you don't want to feed the other side, but I don't know if you can talk about, you know, how one can analyze uh, the, the logistics and which risks to take and which risks are, could be counterproductive. Well, I think any of us who feel anger and uh, want to resist have to also make a resolution. We have to keep firmly in mind the image of people sitting in their living rooms uh, who are moderate people. They want to be decent citizens. They don't particularly like Trump at all, or they're worried about Trump. But they could be easily turned off if if anyone gets to point fingers at dissidents or protesters and, and say convincingly, that those people are crazy and worse. Of course, Trump will be the very first to point the right. finger at anyone who criticizes him. He always has been. Right. And he immediately disparages them and tries to strip them of their dignity, mm. which is amazing. He has no dignity of his own. None. But Zero. a lot of people fall for that. And so if one is going to organize resistance, one has to say, how can we bear ourselves? How can we present ourselves mm-hmm. and our objections in such a way that all those people in the middle, and even some people on the other side, will say, huh, well, they have a point. Well, I have to see that they, these are not uh, evil people, these are not crazy people. Um, a 
again, that's what the civil rights movement did. Americans had images of, of feral, destructive, riotous, uh, criminal blacks uh, reinforced by people who were that way. Yeah. And the civil rights movement made a point of, you know, you dressed in your Sunday best, you bore yourself with dignity, you gave your oppressor. Uh, this is really counterintuitive. This is the hardest thing. Mm. They gave the oppressor a certain amount of credit for having some integrity. Even while they were exposing their shortcomings, they would say to these segregationists, well, you too are Christians. We love you. We, you know, they would embarrass them uh-huh. by appealing to the things that they claim to uphold. That's a kind of jujitsu. Wow. It takes a certain <laughs> skill, <laughs> and it takes training. And people, you know, people forget that when before Rosa Parks moved to the back of the bus, I refused to move to the back of the bus that day in Montgomery in 1955. She had undergone training. She was part of the local chapter of the NAACP, and that's fine. So I think that a lot of people now who are thinking, oh, I just wish somebody would put a bullet through Trump's head or would do something Mm -hmm. crazy. Mm -hmm. You have to hold yourself back and say, wait a minute. What's going to happen after that? Right. If you want to <laughs> actually bring the country around, you've got to do it differently. Good point. And, and you know, the, the, one of the things that I, I have found uh, very frustrating in recent years is that people with experience, people who are educated, sometimes even on the left, people say, oh, they're elitists. Uh, you know, <laughs> learning from history isn't a bad thing. <laughs> and getting a little bit of training, figuring out what works, what doesn't work. I think what you were describing there about, you know, assuming the best in your opponent, it, it kind of disarms them. And disarming the other side is a positive thing. They get less angry and less <laughs> dangerous, quite frankly. Uh, comparing, you know, it's been interesting to me how in recent decades Americans have come to believe we are powerless that street actions don't do anything, there's nothing we can do. The other side has wanted us to accept our sense of powerlessness. Very, very frustrating. Now, we are not powerless, as obviously, Jim Sleeper, you agree. Confrontations between citizens and government, frankly, are much more common and accepted as an integral part of citizenship across the pond in Western Europe. Why is that, do you think? I mean, they, they don't sense that they're powerless. They, they recognize that street actions can actually mean something. I've, I've wondered about that. What do you think, Jim Sleeper? Americans, you know, this goes back to the old frontier ethos. We have this libertarian streak in our political culture, which oh, yes. holds each individual totally responsible to totally remake oneself People stepped off the boat as immigrants, the children of immigrants, and they, they really felt this burden. That's a streak in our political culture that is not the same in, let's say, France or Britain, where you may have a stolid, long-lasting working class mm-hmm. uh, with a sense of its identity and its organization. Yes. Here, everybody thinks that they're responsible to rise out of their class as an individual, mm. but not with their class as a group. And so... I think that that's something we just have to accept. I mean, it's a reality of our civic culture, but we have to organize with that in mind, uh, this business of of, um, leadership of elites. The only elitist elites, the ones worth disparaging, Mm. are people who just sit on a high top and, and moralize and aren't willing to engage with the 
people, ordinary, moderate people, as I was just saying a minute ago, mm-hmm. uh, if they don't do that, and if they don't reach out and take risks themselves, um, that's when they can be called elitist in the way that people sneer at it. And of course, the propagandists are always eager to point that out. You know, if they can, they accuse university professors of being elitists just because they're in a campus that has nice trees and grounds and, <laughs> and they may have tenure. But that doesn't necessarily tell you anything. Although I guess, to get back to your question, though, the nature of, of, of honest and successful resistance, it does require leadership. Yes. You have to have open and circulating elites. People rise mm. to positions of influence by virtue of their ability to persuade others to take risks in an organized way and to remind others what it's all for. Some people are just better at that than others. Mm. And, and the ones who either have, have the charisma or the eloquence, like Martin Luther King or famous labor leaders, are going to do that. And, and they should be welcomed as that. They are leaders, and I suppose you could say they're an elite of sorts, but they're an elite that has earned its way, that has proven itself uh, in taking risks and in helping others to do that. Imagine being educated actually is a good thing. It used to be when I was growing up in the 50s, everybody <laughs> valued education. If you just tuned into Keeping Democracy Alive, Bert Cohen here. Our guest today is Jim Sleeper, a uh, writer in National Civic Cultures and Politics, lecturer in political science at Yale, and he's got a new piece in uh, Washington Monthly called When Resisting Means Risking. And you do go into a bit of uh, the history of the uh, patriotic anti-war movement in the piece. Uh, you mentioned, I mean, we all know uh, Rosa Parks, uh, uh, um, Martin Luther King. Of course, people forget uh, the uh, Riverside Church speech that uh, he gave one year to the day before he was assassinated, where he lined up uh, his movement with the people of Vietnam who were being uh, oppressed by what he called the greatest purveyor of violence in the world, the United States. <laughs> I digress. You mentioned someone most people haven't heard of, William Sloan Coffin. He's far less known. You say Coffin was there to bless an American uh, in an American civic idiom that too few Americans now understand, a kind of courage that too few self-proclaimed patriots understand. Tell us about him, uh, William Sloan Coffin, relative to resisting and risking, please. Yes, uh, William Sloan Coffin was the chaplain. Of, he was a minister. He was the chaplain of Yale University during the uh, 60s, during the late 60s and early 70s when I was there as an undergraduate. When George Bush was there as an undergraduate, uh, John Kerry was there, mm-hmm. Howard Dean was there. Mm-hmm. A lot of, of the Yaleys went on to be civic uh, leaders uh-huh. of protest and of dissident. And Coffin was a man who inspired and touched many of us by his example. He came from an old Yale family. He did not come from the bottom of the heap, although his own immediate family had had some hard times. Uh, but he um, was a brave man who, like a lot of the old prep school Ivy guys in those days, they went off to war. He was in the CIA in Eastern Europe just as the war was ending. He was still kind of behind enemy lines almost, or on the Russian side of the encroaching Red Army. He was risking a lot by finding out what was going on. These guys, and you know, George H.W. Bush, another Yale who was a combat 
fighter pilot. These guys, they were elite, but they believed that with their privileges came a real obligation to set an example and act as stewards. And some of them were better at it than others. And Coffin, he had this kind of Calvinist theology of individual responsibility. He was willing to defy the powers that be in his case, in the name of a higher power. He did it, obviously, for his theological mm-hmm. reasons. Mm-hmm. And he did that very effectively. And what I saw that day when I watched that demonstration, which I describe in, in the Washington Monthly article, I came upon him uh, standing with these three uh, seniors who were returning, handing in their draft cards and refusing conscription. And the rest of us standing around watching this were kind of awed and confused and didn't know what to make of it. Mm. Coffin used a kind of religious language to explain that what they were doing had a higher dignity than just breaking the law, that they were breaking the law in order to affirm a kind of higher law. Now, for him, that was God's law, but it, it, it was also the law of the Constitution, which stands above this or that statute, yes. and, and, and the dignity of a republic. So he brought a kind of uh, sacralized blessing to the civic culture. And, you know, the English writer G.K. Chesterton always said, America is a nation with the soul of a church. That was back in the 1920s, 30s, 40s, when the Christian civic culture was still dominant. And like the Civil Rights Movement, too, you could play to that. You could invoke that, as Martin Luther King did, in order to infuse into protest a certain moral element that moderate people who are not less than necessarily leftists, mm-hmm. they could get that. They could relate to that. So Coffin was one of these bridge figures from the old uh, Christian civic culture at its best, its good moral side, social gospel. He was a bridge figure between that and, and the um, more kind of secular humanist anti-war protests that many of us have been part of. Um, he, he was an important figure in that. Yeah. Norman Mailer wrote quite a bit about him at certain points. I can't remember exactly which novel or where, but or maybe some of his journalism. Uh, Armies of the Night, maybe? I can't recall. Oh, I'm, I bet you're right. It must have been in Armies of the Night. Probably. Every, every, yeah. yeah, That's good. Every now and then the old memory uh, <laughs> grabs on some gem from the past. That was about the uh, uh, protests at the uh, Pentagon in 1967, I believe it was. That's right. And, uh, yeah, it's interesting how, uh, you know, what the, I hadn't heard that phrase about America being a, a church. That's very interesting, because I think... I'll, yeah, he called it a nation with the soul of a church, which just meant interesting. that we kind of transferred a kind of religious enthusiasm into a kind of reverence for the Constitution. I wonder where that is now. Where is reverence for the Constitution now? I mean, people still, you know, there's the whole uh, Christian right, uh, which is certainly right-wing. But, you know, I I wonder where that that reverence for the Constitution that certainly I grew up with, I I wonder now. I mean, it's really, uh, do people care about the Constitution? Everybody pays fealty to it, but do they... Do they get it? Do they understand? I mean, what so many things that that uh, Donald Trump has done and is doing are clearly against the Constitution. Do, do people still connect with that? He's openly trashing something that I think has been weakening on its own accord for some time now. As you said earlier, Bert, 
we kind of read about the civil rights movement. We read about these things. It's now four decades ago, five yeah. decades ago. Younger people don't have any living memories of it. Right. Um, these are just iconic things. And um, in the meantime, in the four decades or five decades between those times and now, there have been powerful, swift currents in our society that I think have been dissolving the kind of civic reverence that you're asking hmm. about. I do think, I mean, and not everyone agrees with me, that I think a lot of it is commercialization. I think it's the casino-like financing of our economy, these kind of risky gambles yeah. that are irresponsible with other people's money and jobs, the um, predatory lending that brought us the yeah. meltdown or near meltdown in 2008 and the um, endless, relentless, intrusive commercial uh, groping and goosing of people as consumers, uh, I think it undermines people's sense of themselves as citizens. You do that to people for four years in an intensive, unending kind of effort, all these abuses I just mentioned, and you don't leave them. When they see their own legislators who they elect unable to curb this, and in fact succumbing to it because they're being bought off, yeah. and to me the crowning jewel of that terrible crown was the Citizens United yeah. ruling of uh, 2010 by the Supreme Court, letting corporations spend their money directly on buying these mm -hmm. legislators and uh, funding their campaign. Owning the government. These yeah. things have vitiated, weakened our our notion of, of citizenship and resistance. So when I try to account for the passivity that you mentioned earlier, the kind of slowness of people to rally and rise up we need to rebuild the kind of civic crowd-level organizations, the labor unions that have been devastated by the anti-union campaign, the uh, civic and, and protest civil rights and other organizations. And they have to be done on a very ecumenical, open basis. They did make their mistakes in the past. Mm -hmm. Some of them did get too drunk on racial grievance or, you know, uh, hurling angry charges in ways that just put people off. Mm -hmm. We have to do it right. And it's, it's going to be a long, slow process. Incidentally, I, I wanted to mention one thing other in response to something you mentioned earlier. Sure. All these other movements took decades to build. I mean, hmm. who really thought? I mean, the anti-war movement did go on and on oh, and on for, yeah. uh, you know, almost 10 or 12 years. Yeah. Finally, they kind of convinced Congress, uh, with a combination of Watergate discrediting Nixon, you know, Congress mm -hmm. finally rose up. But only after years and years oh. of effort. And the civil rights movement, let's not forget. I mean, it was basically 100 years yeah. building from, you know. So these things are hard, long slogs. They are. And people, it seems like in recent times, people just expect instant gratification. Instant gratification. You're right. I remember the, the, the anti-war movement went on and on and on, and it was terribly frustrating how we kept getting bigger and bigger demonstrations and the war kept going on. And it was not illogical for the weather underground to come out of that, well, let's bomb something, but it was kind of stupid and I think incredibly counterproductive. But it does take a long time. And you talk about the power of money. I mean, here we're talking about government. We're talking about uh, self-government, a, a democracy, a Republican form of government. That's not about money, but electing Trump, all he's about is money. 
That's it. There's nothing else. It's all about money. It wouldn't surprise me, frankly, if he really thought, well, he'd make more money if he became president. But I, I don't know. And, you know, to get away from that, boy, that is not easy to do, to 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 reinstill a sense of, of civicness. In fact, when I was in the New Hampshire State Senate, we had a bill in to require that uh, high schools teach civics. The Republicans fought against it and killed it, which is amazing to me. This sense of, of belonging, of uh, you know, being part of a community, I think people long for that. People feel so isolated. Maybe now, I mean, you know, it, it, there's nothing like adversity to bring people together. Well, this is, I think, I think the, the Trump administration is maybe that adversity. And a lot of the young people who, you know, wanted Bernie or bust, I mean, of course, I was for Bernie very strongly, but I supported Hillary because I didn't want Trump. But, uh, you know, you can't have perfection right out of the gate. It takes a little bit of time, well, a lot of time, and a lot of patience. And, boy, I don't know. I mean, it's going to be interesting to see how it gets organized now. I mean, the, the stimulus is there in the form of Trump and Pence, but uh, the action... I don't know. And, you know, there's all kinds of ways of resisting. Um, Of course, the most powerful nonviolent weapon against entrenched power is like a work stoppage, a strike. That is exceptionally risky. Skipping work, even for a day, uh, can cost one his or her job. We don't see many strikes these days. Of course, you know, there were plenty in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. Is that because the goals have been achieved, or if not, that competition for jobs is just too great and no one dares risk it? Again, we're coming down to the question of what risk is worth it. I wonder if you could uh, talk about that a little bit. Well, uh, there's no question that uh, in the old days when there were strikes were frequent, you had powerful union structures that could back up the strikers maybe give them a little something to get along on for a while and had lawyers to go into in their behalf and um, and to really protect them to sustain the strike. Now, not, it's not only that the unions themselves have been weakened by changes in the laws that permit or frustrate union organizing, it's also that, as you mentioned, the competition for jobs has changed. Yeah. Um, it is true that globalization and technology technological change, automation, are really uh, creating a very frightening situation for a young person who's looking for a job and doesn't have special information society tech skills. Mm-hmm. Um, there is really incredibly comp- competition, and, and this is now competition for jobs that don't carry the same benefits and protections. Right. I mean, if you're an Uber driver or something else, you don't have a health plan, a pension plan, any of the things. Guys that had a, a $28 job, a $28 an hour job at an auto plant are now stocking shelves at Walmart for right. 10 or 12 bucks an hour. Right. Uh, and their home has been foreclosed on as a result. Uh, maybe they signed a bad mortgage deal, too, because of the predatory lending. A lot of people have really been devastated, and they don't know who to take it out on because it was all through a subtle process of eviscerating the laws that protected the unions and regulated the banks that prevented these things from happening. And now these things have been happening. 
and and people not only don't know who to blame, but they don't feel that they have the resources or the where they don't know how right. to organize against it. And you're right to say we feel at a loss because the irony about all this casino-style financing and predatory lending, we now have a new incoming president who is a financier of casinos. He's a predatory self-marketer. We have elevated to the presidency mm-hmm. the very incarnation of what's been undoing people. Yeah. And he, he laces it with a little populist uh, demagoguery that makes people focus their anger against you know all the scapegoats that he names. Sure. Oh, yeah. So it's a step backward. It is a step backward. Uh, it's it's a you know it's amazing. Uh, leaves you sort of breathless. And there's going to have to be a lot of careful thinking and reweaving. The only thing I always say, I mean, I say this to my class at Yale, we study the liberal democratic model of the public sphere, and I say, that model, the one that we're trying to defend here, the civic mm-hmm. model, it's always implausible. It's always mm. getting setbacks, but it is always irrepressible. It somehow never dies. Ah. It keeps trying to reassert itself. It keeps coming back. And that has wow. happened several times in this um, century, in this country. When John Kennedy said, ask not what this right. country can do for you, what your country can do for you, you know, this was after a 10-year period of, of a tremendous chill, the Cold War fear, yeah. Yeah. the anti-communist uh, hysteria, which got carried to a point where it was repressing things here at home. Oh, yeah. Things had gotten pretty stultified. And ironically... His call to renew a, a kind of self-sacrifice in a better way probably was an element in energizing the protest of the 60s, yes. uh, even though people didn't see it that way at the time. You know, it was kind of like a Cold War patriotism, but I think it, these things, they reassert themselves, the, the, the hope or the, the demand. People are just not made to accept this kind of um, passivity. Mm and obedience. You know, don't forget how even all the conservatives always thought that communism was going to last for a century, a long, dark night of totalitarianism. We'd be against this thing forever and ever. They were as shocked as anyone when the Eastern Bloc and the Soviet Union imploded. And um, they didn't see it coming. And uh, I think it's coming. I, I think that Trump, daunting though it is, and, and regressive though this time is, you never know what's going to reassert itself. And we just hope that there will be the, the right kind of leadership and organizing principles to keep it on a sane and constructive uh, path that will win over a lot of people. Interesting. Because what we really have to question is yeah. not just Trump. Again, I think he's just the symptom or the symbol yeah. of this kind of ongoing, decades-long, destructive intrusion on civil society by this by this rampant commercialization yeah worship you know? of, worship of money as you say you know the uh, the decision uh, uh, citizens united and allowing government to own i mean uh, allowing big money to own government you know just as a subsidiary of of their money and trump is he's a symbol of that for sure i appreciate very much and it's good to hear your sense of you know, optimism about the human spirit, that we, we, there is something in us that resists oppression and being held down. We like to have, you know, the, the, the people that, that, that created this, uh, this country got the sense that there was some, 
innate, natural wanting to be free, whatever that means, and self-governing. I've seen it now. I, I mean, I've seen people, uh, you know, middle-aged and older people who haven't been involved in politics before who really want to do something now. And the questions are, what do we do? And again, we're talking about uh, risk-taking when resisting means risking. I, I wonder if there are uh, 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 methods, instruments one can plug in to determine if a risk is worth worth the possible reward. Uh, you know, uh, you have to be smart. The, you know, any uh, particular tried and true calculation measures by which we can judge which are good risks and which might set us back. Boy, that's a great question, Bert. I'm not a strategist uh, that I wish I were. I'm not really an organizer by uh, uh-huh. training. Um, Neither am I. And uh, I think we're all drawn to people who we sense are not just charismatic and eloquent, but are good judges of how to pick and choose your battles. Uh-huh, yes. And once you've picked a battle, how to stage it, how to present it to people who are not directly involved in it. Um, I used to watch organizers in in inner-city New York, inner-city Brooklyn, black and Hispanic, poor, devastated neighborhoods. They would pick certain modest targets at first, uh-huh. just like a grocery store that wasn't providing proper fresh produce and so on. And they would stage it very carefully. They would make sure that it was a winnable battle, but that it pointed toward larger problems. Hmm. And soon, after about 10 years of that, they had powerful networks of church-based groups that were building new housing and doing it without some of the expensive loans and lending, and they they had managed to put together financing schemes. They built this from the ground up, drawing from the strength of um, certain community groups of people uh, and, and turning it into a political action plan. The people who led that, are not famous, they're not known very well, but um, there are people like that all around the country in various communities and neighborhoods. Um, actually, people have to learn to find out about those people, to search them out. Um, one one book that I've always enjoyed that, that is a little bit intellectual, but it, it actually describes this in history, not only in American history, is Jonathan Schell, S-C-H-E-L-L. He wrote a book called The Unconquerable World. Hmm. Jonathan Shell, The Unconquerable World. And um, that sort of describes how, even though most people think that power is just a top-down, coercive, armed thing, real power comes from people who act together in concert without using violence. But, as you said earlier, if they massively decide to disobey, then there's nothing that the government or anyone else can do about it. I mean, you can't just arrest every single person who um, decides not to participate in or obey a certain law. It depends how widespread and well-organized the resistance is. And again, what its target is, it has to be clear about what it's affirming as well as what it's opposing and where it's going with all of this. Hmm. Um, That's That's a lot to think about, but... It's doable, and you're right, figuring out what's a good image to convey, and let's face it, it's all about, you know, uh, does the media pick up on it? The fact, I mean, had people in 67 at the Pentagon 
put the flowers in the barrels of the rifles and gotten no attention, it wouldn't have been anything. And right. I, I think, you know, the other side has figured that out quite a bit, too. But that kind of image is a very, very powerful image. And, you know, Trump and his gang know the uh, the power of the media. That's why they hate them. And maybe that's maybe this will give the media some uh, chutzpah that they've been lacking for a long time. Oh, that's a very good, that's a very important point. Um, what will the media do to prove that it can stand up to this? Because I think that Trump is about to begin an assault on the free press. Yes. That's probably the strongest thing we've seen since uh, the McCarthy period in the 50s. Mm. Since in 1919, at the end of World War One or during World War One, Woodrow Wilson imposed Ugh. a lot of restrictions. Sure did. On, on freedom of expression against the war and so on. Oh. And there was a big red scare then, too, also. They blamed it on the commies and the, and the usual uh, thing. And we're going to see all of that again. Oh, great. And we're going to see who stands up to it and who's willing to risk going to prison. The sad thing is we've watched Trump express his admiration for people like Vladimir Putin mm. or Recep Tayyip Erdogan, the, uh, mm-hmm. uh, the virtual dictator now of Turkey. Mm-hmm. And they have done ter- horrific things to the press. They put hundreds of journalists in, in jail yes, or yes. even some have been murdered. Um, I don't know what Trump will do, but he could lurch into doing things that extreme. I, I don't put that beyond possibility uh, and, because he's so obsessed with any criticism of him. Well, and, he's, and once he thinks he has the power to suppress it, he will try a few exemplary intimidations mm-hmm. that will scare everybody. Uh, and uh, those tactics have to be understood and resisted. And that's where, you know, the press itself has to be a little bit heroic, the media, journalists. They do. We'll see. Yeah, we, they, they have in America a long history of being heroic. The, the uh, yes. Pentagon Papers, uh, reporters who uh, discovered and showed that there were no weapons of mass destruction after all. There's going to be a movie about that. Uh, but, but, you know, when, when Trump had that first news conference and when he just slammed down CNN, what are other reporters going to do? I mean, we really depend on this. Certainly, Thomas Jefferson knew how important the press was. Uh, and this is a crucial time. I wonder what, you know, we the people can do. We, we've we gotten, you know, Trump and, and others talk about fake news. Well, the fake news comes from him. The news reporters report news, actual news. But they've twisted it around so much, 1984 style, that will the public encourage the news media to do the reporting, to stand up and say, you know, wouldn't it have been great, for example, uh, uh, Jim, had the media at the time of that news conference, you know, when when he dissed and refused to answer the questions from CNN, said, hey, we're out of here. You answer his questions or we're out of here. But they didn't do it. Yeah, I would have loved to have seen all the reporters. I think you could tell that most of the reporters in the crowd supported the CNN reporter and were appalled by what Trump was doing. But they all work for these news organizations, right? Money the based. problem with journalism is journalists do what, at their best, do exactly what you say. They stand up, they report the truth, they they will dig and get information that powerful people don't want you to know. Absolutely. And they are willing to risk making enemies in order to do that and to do the hard slogging work that none of us have the time to do. Right. That's what reporters should do. And if they do that, that's great, but journalists are paid by news by media corporations that are not about that. Media corporations are about ratings and assembling oh, yeah. audiences. 
getting advertisers for, for the highest possible on any pretext. Yep. It can be a nihilistic Anything. pretext. It can be an erotic one. They'll, they'll assemble them if they'll get the, the ratings. So the reporters are always being told by their producers, if, if it's broadcast, or by their editors, oh, tone it down, or turn it this way, or emphasize this. Um, they have to resist something that's coming from within their own news organization sometimes uh, in order to resist uh, things that are coming from the government. They have to do both. It's very hard. And will they do it? Will they do it? That's the question now. And again, you know, if uh, Trump, uh, you know, uh, violates the Constitution, will... The question is, Congress, are, all they care about is getting reelected. We, you know, it, it's the same thing for, for the press, too, for the reporters. You know, is this going to get them more advertising? Are they, you know, they going to sell more papers or whatever if they take this side versus that side? It's going to be an interesting balance. And again, that brings up human nature, as you talked about before, and I love to hear that sense of optimism. I, you know, I, I have that too most of the time. If you just tuned in, we're having a great conversation with uh, Jim Sleeper about uh, his article, When Resisting Means Risking and Taking Risks and uh, Fighting for the Republic, Sometimes Against the Government uh, and History. I'm a history buff as well. You mentioned Gibbons, the decline and fall of the Roman Empire in your article, specifically regarding how citizens of Republic can, as you say, slide almost imperceptibly into imperial submission, unquote. That's what we've been talking about. Tell us more about how that observation relates to our present condition, how we've slid almost imperceptibly into imperial submission. And waking up from that is not easy. And the Trump forces love it. Well, it's really chilling experience to um, read... Edmund Gibbon, Edward Gibbon's decline and fall of the Roman Empire, because what he describes is a situation where you had a republic, and you had um, a pretty strong republic, and it came under stress, military and otherwise, and it had to take desperate measures to preserve itself, and... Augustus, who was really sort of the first emperor, claimed, well, all I want to do is save the republic and restore it to its former glory, make America great again. Uh, right. <laughs> and as he was making that claim, he started saying, well, here are the people who are preventing us from achieving our glory. And who did he name? Of course, he picked his enemies in the Senate, the Roman Senate. And he was able to expel. He could do things that a president can't literally do, but... Augustus expelled or even killed a few senators, which scared the rest completely. No. And he did another, uh, a number of other exemplary punishments. But the Gibbon also makes another observation, which is like what we were saying earlier. He says, a slow and secret poison had somehow insinuated itself into the vitals of the country, so that citizens gradually had lost their old civic courage, their sense of command of events, their ability to stand up and affirm things. They had somehow um, lost that spirit, and they mm. began to accept yes. the laws from powers above them, which is exactly what we feel is happening to us now. And our founders, 
the American founders were reading Edward Gibbon's book as it was coming off the presses huh. in the 1770s. Huh. That's when he was writing it. And if you read back into John uh, Adams and James Madison and Richard Henry Lee, these guys were obsessed with Gibbons's account of how the Republic weakened. And when Ben Franklin was coming out of Independence Hall during the debate oh, over yes. the Constitution, and some bystander asked him, what kind of government are you devising for us in there? Franklin said, a republic if you can keep it. And now? He really, they were really worried. Well, They knew it was a gamble. Now, Alexander Hamilton said something really well said. He said, history seems to have destined Americans to decide the important question whether a people can really govern itself through reflection and choice, or whether that people is doomed to depend for its constitution on accident and force and fraud. Can people really deliberate and decide? They, the founders of our own country, reading Edward Gibbon, felt, boy, there are always these powerful undertoes of demagoguery, of commercial temptation, seduction, yeah. that pull people away from the rigor, the vigilance that citizenship vigilance. requires. Yes. And yet, we have a history full of people who um, basically have that courage and show up with it. Yes, we do. And uh, there's that old phrase, uh, the price of liberty is eternal vigilance. I can't remember who said that. Uh, but uh, we have to be vigilant. And I thought it was interesting, one guy I like very much these days, who I'm sure the Trump administration does not, is Paul Krugman. Uh, oh, yes. And he wrote very recently that, quote, patriotism means standing up for your country's values. In the current context of a Trump presidency, uh, Jim Sleeper, how would you define patriotism? And will it connect with people? I have a sense it will. People are worried, they're scared. Talk about that a little bit, about the perhaps a rising up of a new sense of patriotism and citizenship. Right. You know, let me start with one thing on that that you would sort of think I would never mention. The Tea Party. Okay. You had all these people who were enraged at a feeling of powerlessness, right? That's true. And they're living That's what it in comes Kansas from, yes. and in Heartland America, also in New Hampshire, and, and we all know everywhere, a lot of places. And they just felt like they had been screwed. and That this government were, wasn't our government. What's that? That this government wasn't our government. They were right on that. Right, right. So they felt that they had been cheated and, and that they had to, you know, resist and rebel against government, against Washington, where all these rules were made. What they didn't know and what they were misled by a lot of uh, right-wing talk shows and a lot of uh, well-oiled and lavishly funded noise machines, yeah. uh, the Fox News phenomenon, I think, is definitely to blame here. Um, they kind of misplaced and misdirected their anger. And they were told to blame, of course, Obama and the liberal Democrats. And mm -hmm. Let me tell you, I mean, like you, I had a lot of skepticism about Hillary and, and neoliberal democratic politics. I was for Bernie as well. And, yes. you know, I, I, don't, I don't think that the Democrats under the Clinton mode were doing the right thing either. No. But, you know, the Tea Party was sort of directed just to blame them and not to confront 
the Republican orthodoxy, which is slash taxes and slash regulations, which is even more disastrous. Oh, yeah. And now I think, to answer your question, I, I think what we're finding is a lot of those people are finding out now. Or they're going to, they may be gloating still now yeah. about defeating the liberal elites. They're going to be gulping in about six months because they're going to find that if they want to challenge Trump's coziness with Putin, or if they want to challenge Trump's labor people rolling back all the benefits and rights mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. of workers and, and denying them overtime pay uh, for, for, base, for jobs on infrastructure, they're going to suddenly find themselves put down and, and put down very badly. And then where are they going to go? And I think there'll be, I think that we can hope that there will be a serious rethinking on the part of Tea Party people and Trump supporters who were understandably disgusted with the kind of neoliberal yeah. thing as well as with some of the conservative orthodoxy. We have to not forget that these people who voted for Trump voted against a lot of orthodox conservative Republicans in order to do that. They, dis- they, de- they threw out Jeb Bush, yeah. Chris Christie, uh, Marco Rubio. They, they threw these guys aside in the primaries. So they were rejecting something in that kind of right-wing orthodoxy, and they believed wrongly that Trump would liberate them from that. Interesting. So I'm, I'm sensing here that there's, a, there's still a possibility that we, you know, traditional patriots, traditional Democrats, uh, I, I think, could perhaps connect with some of those alienated people who who went to the Tea Party and may have voted for Trump, that there is that possibility that, gosh, you know, we all care about self-government. We want our government to serve we the people. What a concept. Hey, this has been fascinating discussion. We could go on and on, and we need to do it again. What's a website to which you can point people to read more of your stuff? Uh, just uh, jimsleeper.com, J-I-M-S-L-E-E-P-E-R, jimsleeper.com. That's my website. And if they click on latest work, they'll find the Washington Monthly piece and all the others. Uh, by all means, I hope people will do that. And uh, definitely, I'd love to hear from people, too. All right. And let's uh, be active patriots and real citizens like our founders intended. Thank you so much. Well, Bert, thank you for focusing on that, because it's really important to re-understand and recapture what patriotism really requires. And Absolutely. We're your right to do it. All right. Thank you so much. Well, don't you know nobody turn you round, turn you round, turn you round. Well, don't you let nobody turn you round. You got to keep on walking, keep on talking, marching to the freedom line. Freedom Man. Well, don't let the politician turn you round, slow you down. 